with being the youth pastor here at FAC this time of year, like I mentioned earlier, is always bittersweet for me um, as we um, get another round of seniors that we've grown so close to depart and scatter their separate ways. Um, with prior experience, I've been involved with youth ministry for uh, a little over 11 years now, and I can tell you that the overall sentiment as seniors graduate is um, it's one of excitement that is mingled and entangled with a s- sense of fear, a sense of anxiety. Uh, it's this uneasy feeling that a lot of seniors don't quite um, know how to put into words. Um, it's this, just this nervous excitement. It's the, it's the nervous, the unknown, um, the fear of the unknown, the fear of the future. Um, it's a healthy fear that comes with the transition into the into adulthood. And I remember the feeling well as I was in high school, um, getting ready to to graduate. And it, it's I just had this really daunting mindset of, wow, I could really mess up my life now. And there's and there's no safety nets, right? And I just remember specifically thinking, as long as I um, let me just get through this transition, let me get through this hard part, let me let me just get there into adulthood, and then everything will get easier. <laughs> Little did I know in my own immaturity um, that the older I got, the more substantial my decisions became and the harder it got. I look back now and think, boy, that was easy. I'm in the hard part now, right? And so, you know, as I graduated and grew up and went to college and I got married and I've got a wife and I've got to provide for her, and now I've got kids, and what do I what do I do with those? Right? And I've got students now that, that are depending on me, and so I'm thinking it's one thing to mess up my life; it's an entirely different thing to have the opportunity to mess other people's lives up. And, and this this sense of anxiety and this this fear of our decisions, fear of the future, only grows as we get older. Um, it, it, it's a, this unanxious, this uneasy, anxious feeling is hard to shake because there's always something in our distant or not so distant future that's coming down the pike that we're going to have to face. There's always something knocking uh, on tomorrow's door that we don't want to uh, open up to. We don't want to face some of the things in our future. How am I going to get through this painful season of life? How am I going to pay this next bill? How can I possibly handle the extra workload that's required of me? How am I going to cope with the injury or the loss of a loved one? If we're honest with ourselves, the, the future can be crippling. It is crippling. It's so, it's so debilitating that you just want to throw in the towel on life. And if you're anything like me, you're thinking, no, I'm just going to, I'm going to go in my room. I'm going to lock myself in my room. I'm going to get in my bed. I'm going to curl up in a little ball. I'm going to get under the covers and I'm going to watch Netflix (laughs) until my brain falls out because I don't want to face what's out there. And as long as I'm sitting here watching my shows, I don't have to worry about what the future holds. I don't have to face tomorrow. I don't have to be fearful. As tempting as that sounds, let me encourage you that there's another way. There's a better way. There's a God-honoring way to face this tension that we have in our hearts as we're dragged against our will into the future. And so if you have your Bibles, I just want to invite you to take them and turn with me to Joshua chapter 3. 
Joshua chapter 3, we're actually going to start in the middle of the chapter, uh, verse 14. Um, we're going to read into chapter 4. I'm going to read the first seven verses, and I'm going to take a, a, a pause, and we're going to skip ahead. And so don't mind me as I kind of jump around, but all you need to know is Joshua 3, verse 14 is where we're going to start, and you can go ahead and follow along. Joshua 3, verse 14. This is what it says. So when the people set out from their tents to pass over the Jordan with the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people, and as soon as those bearing the Ark had come as far as the Jordan, and the feet of the priests bearing the Ark were dipped in the brink of the water, now the Jordan overflows all its banks throughout the time of the harvest. The waters coming down from above stood and rose up in a heap very far away at Adam, the city uh, that is beside Zarethan, and those flowing down toward the Sea of the Araba, the Salt Sea, were completely cut off. And the people passed over opposite Jericho. Now the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan, and all Israel was passing over on dry ground until the nation finished passing over the Jordan. When all the nation had finished passing over the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, Take twelve men from the people, each uh, from each a tri- uh, tribe a man, and command them, saying, Take twelve stones from here, out of the midst of the Jordan, from the very place where the priest's feet stood firmly, and bring them over with you, and lay them down in the place where you lodge tonight. Then Joshua called the twelve men from the people of Israel, whom he had appointed, a man from each tribe. And Joshua said to them, Pass on before the ark of the Lord your God into the midst of the Jordan and take up each of you a stone upon his shoulder, according to the number of tribes of the people of Israel, that this may be a sign among you when your children ask in time to come, what do these stones mean to you? Then you shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. When it passed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. And now verse 19. The people came up out of the Jordan, and on the tenth day of the first month, and they encamped at Gilgal on the east border of Jericho. And those twelve stones which they took out of the Jordan, Joshua set up at Gilgal. And he said to the people of Israel, When your children ask their fathers in times to come, what do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know. Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over, as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up for us until we passed over. So that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray now as we open up your word uh, that you would open up our hearts and that you would mold our hearts to be like yours and that we would see your mighty power. And in your holy name I pray, amen. Uh, What we've just read is a absolutely pivotal moment in the narrative of the Old Testament for the Israelites. Um, In in order to appreciate the significance of these events, to understand the gravity of what we've just read, we actually need to rewind the story a little bit. We need to rewind the story uh, because this has been a long time coming. We actually need to rewind it several centuries back to a man named Abraham. 
a man of God whom God made a covenant with. He made a promise to Abraham and uh, uh, in this covenant, in this promise that he made to Abraham, in this deal that he made with Abraham, he actually promises him several things, but two primary things. The first one is, Abraham, I'm going to give you children. I'm going to give you offspring. Right At the time, him and his wife, Sarah, were barren. They couldn't have children. And so to Abraham, this was very significant. Abraham, I'm going to give you a great nation. They're going to bless the entire world. The second thing, Abraham, that I'm going to give you is this land of Canaan. We call it the promised land. I'm going to give you people, and I'm going to give you land. And this was God's promise to Abraham. And so, sure enough, Abraham does, uh, and his wife, he bore a son. And, and generations later, this group of people that we refer to as the Israelites, you'll see this time again in the Old Testament, Abraham's descendants find themselves through just a series uh, of events. They end up enslaved in G- Egypt, and they are persecuted in Egypt. And it gets so bad and it happens for so long that they are crying out to God, deliver us, deliver us, take us out of this situation, God. And they began to wonder, did did God forget about his promise that he made to our people? Did did God forget his promises? Because it doesn't seem like he's hearing us right now. But we know that God heard their cry. He didn't forget his promise to them. And so he raises up Moses. And Moses leads them out of Egypt. And you get the story of the the parting of the Red Sea and the the ten plagues, right? And he leads them out of Egypt, and then we finally get to the point where God is ready to deliver on his promise. The problem, though, was that while God was ready to deliver on his promise, the Israelites weren't ready to deliver on their obedience, This is what happens. Moses decides we're going to scope out this promised land before we go in. We're preparing to go in. There's going to be a fight. And so we've got to be prepared. We've got to know what we're getting into. And he sends 12 spies. The 12 spies come back. And out of those 12 spies, if you remember the story, 10 of them come back and say, we, it's ludicrous to go in there. There's giants in the land. They're bigger than us. They're stronger than us. They're more powerful than us. This is crazy if we were to walk in there. However, there were two other spies, Caleb and Joshua, which we read about. And Caleb and Joshua said, we understand that this is scary. This doesn't really make any sense. But God is asking us to go in, and we're going to trust that God will deliver us into that land. If he's big enough to deliver us out of Egypt, he's big enough to deliver us into a land that he has promised. He is going to keep his promises. And what we get is, I guess, majority rules. They decide not to go into the promised land. And as a direct result of their disobedience, they end up wandering the desert for 40 years. The entire generation dies out with the exception of Caleb and Joshua. And they never get to reap the blessing, the benefit that is God's promised land because of their disobedience. And so... According to Scripture, we find that Joshua succeeds Moses. And Joshua says, all right, we're ready to obey. And this is where we come to our passage. They're literally sitting at the doorstep across the Jordan River. They're sitting at the doorstep of the promised land. They're sitting at the doorstep waiting to be delivered in. And um, hundreds of years after this covenant was made with Abraham, um, God is going to deliver them. 
into this land. This is where we pick up our passage. Um, According to the beginning of chapter 3, they get to the Jordan River, and what's the first thing that they do? We didn't read this, but in verse 1 of chapter 3, the first thing that they do is sit and wait. It says that they lodge there for three days. They're just kind of pondering the the task at hand. They they had the opportunity to just sit there and focus. Sit there and just think, all right, are we ready to obey? It's almost like God is like, like just placing them in a spot where they can wait on him. And this is, this is what happens, you know, even in our own life. It's almost like God's saying, are you ready to obey now? Are you ready? It's been 40 years. I could go another if you want. Obey me. It's like our children, right? When, when you need them to listen to you or obey you and they're especially hectic or frantic and they're running all over the place, you just kind of, you just grab them and just say, hey, just, just sit down for a second. Just stop. No, no, no. Just look me in the eyes. Just rest. Are you ready to obey now? Are you ready to obey? And this is what God does with the Israelites and they wait and they wait and they wait on the Lord as they ponder the task of getting through this giant obstacle. And then on the third day, God speaks. God's ready to give his instructions. They've waited long enough, and God decides to act. And he tells Joshua, hey, Joshua, go instruct the priests who carry the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant, guys, was just, to put it plainly, it was a representation of of God's power and his presence. He says, go tell the priest, take the Ark of the Covenant, and just walk into the Jordan River. Just dip dip your feet, dip your legs into the brink of the Jordan River. Just go out there and just stand there. And then that's it. God doesn't tell him what he's going to do. He just wants them to obey. Just take him at his word. Just go and do it. If I'm sitting there, if I'm Joshua, I'm thinking, that, okay, I'm writing down these steps, God. What's next? Like, what do we do next? No, that's it. That's all I want you to do. And so they do. They, they go grab the Ark of the Covenant. They bring it into the water. And would you know, the river was halted. The, the, the river flow stopped. And, and, and the Israelites were able to walk across on dry land. And we see that God, once again, hundreds of years after his covenant with Abraham, has delivered on his promise, has delivered them into the promised land. And so as they cross the Jordan, we see two things in the Israelites' attitude. The first one is this is a mark of obedience. We've already touched on this. This is a mark of obedience. They had to obey if they intended to inherit the promised land. We see this in the previous generation. They didn't obey, and they ended up paying for it. No, if you want to enjoy God's blessing, you have to be obedient. There is an obedience mark when it comes to receiving God's blessing. So we see that the Israelites were finally willing to obey. It's a mark of obedience. This is also a mark of trust. In verse 15, if you were to look at this, this this river is flooding. It's overflowing because it's the time of the harvest. It's this particular time of year. This was no easy task. And they're probably looking at this thing like, how on earth are we supposed to get across this thing? What do, what do, how on earth is this going to work? This doesn't make any sense. But instead, what they did is they, they exchanged the visible and the tangible for the invisible and the spiritual. They're thinking, this doesn't make any sense, but we're going to do it anyway. We're going to do it by, by all human understanding. Um, this is absolutely crazy. 
but I know that God's going to come through because he asked us to do this. So I'm going to trust him. I'm going to trust him. I think these are things that God, primarily that God still wants from us today. He wants our obedience. He wants our trust. And there are going to be things that he's going to ask you to do that you're not going to like. There are going to be things that he asks you to do that aren't going to make any sense. There's going to be things that he asks you to do that are going to sound crazy. He's going to ask you to lay down your life. He's going to ask you to sacrifice. And so what is our response when God calls us to such things? Obedience and trust. I'm going to trust him. I'm going to obey him. They obey God. They trust God. They cross the Jordan. And then we see this kind of weird break in the narrative. Right before the, before the waters come crashing down, God kind of chimes in to Joshua. He says, Hey, Joshua, I've got further instructions for you. Uh, go grab 12 men, each one representing one of the tribes of Israel. Make sure all of Israel is represented. They need to go. And as they're passing the Ark of the Covenant, go tell them to go grab a big old stone, right? Hoist it up on their shoulders. Bring that with you to the other side. To, into the promised land. Bring it with you to, uh, to, to Gilgal and set up these, these, these stones. Set up this memorial that's going to be there forever. Now there's, if you look at the passage, there, it could be 12 stones for each person or one stone for each person representing 12 stones. It, it, it's, it's up for interpretation. The bottom line, the meaning doesn't change. It doesn't matter. They're to set up a monument with what I believe is 12 stones uh, on the other side. And it's a simple monument, right? It's, it's, it's very simple. There's nothing special about it. There's nothing carved. There's no symbols. There's no inscription with a hammer and chisel. Just 12 rigid, heavy stones. And we see this memorial that Joshua is commanded to set up. It's really a visual aid. It's an illustration that is built with the intention to provoke questions, mainly from their children. God knows that future generations are going to look at this thing later on, and they're going to ask the question of this memorial. They're going to ask, what do these stones mean? Because if you think about it, that's what children do. They ask questions, don't they? It's so all they do sometimes is they ask questions. My son, uh, Jacob, he's three years old, and he's in this very inquisitive phase right now. It's so all he's doing is asking me questions. The other day, I was putting clothes on to go uh, cut the grass. I was putting my lawn mowing clothes on, and he looks at me, and he says, Daddy, why are you, putting, why are you changing your clothes? Well, i got to go mow the grass. Why do you have to mow the grass? Well, because it gets long, bud, and it doesn't look very nice. Why does it get long? Well, because it rains, and when the rain you know, hits the grass and the soil soaks it up, that's what causes it to grow. Why does the rain cause it to grow? Well, I, well like, because God made it like that, I guess. I don't know. Like, and he just goes on and on and on, and we play this little game now where like, we see, it's almost like a game of chicken, right? We see who can keep going the longest, and he always beats me. <laughs> he, like, he will never resist. He will never give up because he wants to know. He is like a little sponge that just wants to absorb information. All the information. He wants every drop of information that he can get. And these children are going to see these rocks in the future. And they're going to ask, hey, Daddy, what do these stones mean to you? What, are, what do these stones mean? 
Don't you see that the purpose of setting up these stones is by nature generational? It is by nature generational. Don't miss how important this is. In in, in a time where it seems like only today matters, God is careful to take his time in the present to care for the future by pointing them to the past. He is taking a break from the story, a break from the narrative, a break from the story, um, the, the crossing in the present to minister to the future by pointing them to the past. He wants these children to be pointed to the past. And this is our responsibility as Christians to the next generation. Our responsibility is to give our children and our grandchildren reminders of what God has done through history. This is why we have children's ministry here at FAC. This is why we have youth ministry here at FAC. Not so that they can have fun, not so they can play games, not so they, they can make some friends, not so you get a free night of babysitting. No, we, we do this to tell them about the great wonders of God. And this is how future generations participate in the acts that God has done. So while we weren't there, and those children weren't there when they crossed the Jordan, they look to the stones and they participate in God's providential work. When the Israelite father shows his child the 12 stones at Gilgal, the child is participating in his miraculous work. And you'll notice in verse 22 that God doesn't leave the interpretation. He doesn't leave it up to interpretation. He says, when your children ask you this question, this is the answer. Don't come up. Don't try and come up with something clever on your own because you'll probably mess it up. This is what I want you to say. Verse 23, for the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up for us until we passed over so that all the people of the earth may know that the land of the, or the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. Son, these stones are a reminder because boy, you know, I need a reminder. You know that we need a reminder over and over again. We need to be reminded because we all have a tendency to forget. We all have a tendency to forget because our minds are hopelessly cluttered. We are bombarded with information on a daily basis. We drink data from a fire hose. So sometimes we just need to slow down. We need to slow down, stop, and remember. Remember yesterday. You want to have faith for tomorrow? Look to the past. Look at what God has done. It it actually reminds us of two things. It's a reminder of two things. The first one is just that, what God has done. What did God do? He dried up the land so they could walk over the Jordan River. He he halted. He, he, He came through on his promise. That's what God did. Yeah, we got the water and it's a miracle and they all crossed over. But what did God do? He crossed over. He he separated the waters so that he could deliver on his promise. It's a reminder of what God has done. The second thing that we're reminded of is who God is. Verse 24, it says, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty. When we see these stones 
We are reminded not just of what God did, but who he is. And who is he? He is wonderful. He is mighty. He is glorious. And when we see these stones, we're reminded of the glorious, majestic, breathtaking supremacy of God. And this reminder of what God has done and who God is should elicit a response And it's at the end of verse 24. You can see it right there. So that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty. What response should that draw out of us? That you may fear the Lord your God forever. What is that response? The fear of God. The God who can open up this river is a God to be feared. The psalmist understood this in 114, Psalm 114. This is what he, he says. The sea, the sea looked and fled. Jordan turned back. The mountains skipped like rams, the hills like lambs. What ails you, O sea, that you flee? O Jordan, that you turn back. O mountains, that you skip like rams. O hills, like lambs. What he's saying is, why does the Jordan turn back? Why do, do the mountains kind of skip? Why, why did the sea look and flee? What does it say? Tremble, O earth, at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the God of Jacob. God doesn't even need to do anything. Just his presence should make us tremble. Just his very presence should cause us to fear him. And to fear him means to hold him in just the highest respect. It's, it's a visceral recognition. It's like this emotional response of God's might. To fear him is to take him very, very seriously. To fear him is to not desire to wrestle with him or tangle with him. John Piper is a pastor from Minnesota, and he compares the fear of God to that of being involved, um, witnessing just a, a horrible storm. And as I'm, I'm reading about this illustration, I thought about a time in my own life. Several years back, it was Independence Day. My wife and I decided to take Ella, she was just a baby at the time, to go see her first firework display. We weren't sure how this was going to work, um, you know, how she would react to the fireworks, uh, but we decided to give it a shot. And so obviously with Independence Day, we had to get there like super early and the, our car was already parked super far away. Uh, but we get to our normal spot um, and, and we're ready to watch the fireworks display and then off in the distance we see like storm clouds they just they they look like oh man we might get some rain there was nothing intimidating about them it was just kind of like a, a yeah we might get rained on this isn't going to be pleasant and then the fireworks went off they started the, the show and would you know it that within five minutes we went from completely dry to torrential downpour, it, like literally in a matter of seconds. It was one of those, one instance I'm dry, one, it lo- the next instance I look like I'm swimming, I w- took a dip in the pool or something, right? This was like just absolute torrential downpour, some of the strongest downpour I've ever seen. And so I started thinking like, the baby, I got to get back to the car. I got to take shelter. So I take her and I like throw her in the stroller. I don't, I like, I don't throw her in the stroller. I... I place her in the stroller gently and kindly and I throw the the hood thing on it and then I just take off right and I am just darting as fast as I can for for the car and I don't even get a quarter of the way to, to the car when the thunder and the lightning start 
And I've got to tell you, I have never been more fearful in my life. I, I have never been this close to thunder and lightning. I hear lightning striking trees around me. And this lightning was striking like every five to ten seconds. And not only that, the fireworks were still going off. <laughs> right? And so I am booking it, and I keep, there's thunder, and there's fireworks. It's almost as if, like, God was having a competition with the fireworks. He's like, I can show you a firework display. Right? And I am just running through. I feel like I'm in a war zone. And there's a moment where I'm pushing on this stroller thinking, this is it. I'm going to die. Like, I'm going to get, I'm going to straight up get hit by lightning. And like, I'm just, I, and I just kind of came to the acceptance that this was going to happen. Right. And so I get back to the car and I put Ella in the car and I get, get in there and I close the door. And then I just take a deep breath. I'm safe. Now the storm was still going on and I experienced what John Piper would call a, a trembling pleasure. It was a trembling pleasure that I enjoyed in the safety and the confines of my car while still being in awe of this storm. And this is what John Piper has to say. This is his illustration about the fear of God. This is what he says. At first, there was the fear that this terrible storm and awesome terrain might claim your life. I was thinking, man, how did he know about that story? But then you found a refuge and gained the hope that you would be safe. But not everything in the feeling called fear vanished from your heart, only the life-threatening part. There remained the trembling, the awe, the wonder, the feeling that you would never want to tangle with such a storm or be the adversary of such power. The fear of God is what is left of the storm when you have a safe place to watch right in the middle of it. Oh, the thrill of being here in the center of, uh, in the center of the awful power of God, yet protected by God himself. The purpose of these 12 stones was to cultivate and raise awareness of the fear of God. And it's not until you embrace this fear of God that you realize that God is bigger than tomorrow. God is bigger than tomorrow. He's bigger than anything that I could ever face in the future. These trials that you're going to face have nothing on an almighty God. He wants them to look back at those rocks and say, if God can do this here, then he's strong enough, he's big enough, he's wise enough, to handle anything that I'm going to face tomorrow. We need constant reminders of what God has done in the past to give us the assurance that he's going to come through in the future when we need it most. Most importantly, we need to be reminded that God comes through on his promises. It's to say, Lord, I don't know what tomorrow will bring, but I am going to trust in you because I know you are my Lord. And I know that you are mighty and I fear you and you are Lord over all of this. And the beauty of these reminders, the beauty of this memorial of stones for the Israelites is that if they ever wanted to withdraw back to the wilderness, if they ever had any doubts, figuratively speaking, they would cross over these rocks and they would scream at them. These rocks would cry out to them, don't you remember? Don't you recall what your God has done? 
Don't you remember his might and his power? You, you don't fear God anymore? To walk past these memorials is to say, my God is not enough. And the day that you can do that without having your conscience pricked is the day that you no longer fear God. And that is a dangerous place to be. And I, so I think the application for us today is pretty clear. Two, two main points. The first one, not as important as the second one. It's secondary. The second one being primary. Um, what personal events in your own life do you need to remember? What personal events do you need to remember in order to raise your awareness of God's power? Do you need the support to face tomorrow? Jumpstart your memory with all the ways that God has led you in the past. How has God led you? What markers have been laid down in your own spiritual walk that remind you of God's sovereign hand at work? Maybe, just maybe it was a time where he led you through a valley of despair. Perhaps it was a time when God provided for you when you had nothing. Maybe it was a time that God healed your sickness. Maybe it was a time that his hand of protection was over you and he shielded you from physical danger. I've got one of those. If um, you were to dig around in my wallet, uh, you would stumble across this old subway ticket. It looks like this. I've got a picture of it. It's kind of torn up. It's been through the laundry a couple times. Um, and you might look at that and say, Mike, why do you keep that old rugged thing? Like, What does that mean to you? And so something that seems so ordinary to you is actually very, very important to me. Um, if you if you see the date on there, it actually reads July 7th, um, 2005. It's a, it's a subway ticket to the London Underground. Um, that morning on July 7th, 2005, there was a terrorist attack in, in the London Underground system, and it claimed the lives of over 50 people. Uh, my train left out of Highbury Station, as you can see. One of the bombs that went off in one of the underground trains left from King's Cross Station, which was just about a mile and a half away. We, we brushed death that morning. Why didn't they pick my train? I don't, I don't know. I'll never know. Um, we were underground when that attack took place. And so I hold on to this ticket as a reminder of God's grace that day. As a reminder that that day God protected me. And we've got to be careful, though. And this is why these things are secondary. These personal historic moments that you have point to a time that God has come through for you in a very specific way. But he may not come through with you in that specific way in the future. It might not be the same. If, if, if those terrorists decided to choose my train that day and I died that day, God would still be all the more good and all the more mighty. And so we have to be careful. If God has healed you in the past, it doesn't mean he's going to necessarily heal you in the future. Um, this is just a part of life, Right. But you have to understand that these moments, these personal moments that God has placed in your life point to something greater. They point to something bigger. And so we actually have to take a step back to the primary point of application. We need to step back and see the, the biggest picture, the bigger picture. Because these moments, it's not the point of these moments. These moments are there in the past to set our sights on God in the presence so that we can be aware of his power in, or, in order to dwell on what's primary, 
right? We know he is able to come through in these specific circumstances. And because we know he is able to come through in these circumstances, it helps us know that he is able to come through on his primary circumstances, the primary situations, that being his promises. These personal moments that we have point to the fact that when he tells us that he's going to do something in his word, when he tells us he gives us a promise, he is going to uphold his promises. See, the story that we read, really what it's doing, guys, is connecting the power of God with the promises of God. The power of God with the promises of God. It's a reminder that he is able to come through and he's going to come through on everything he's promised you. And if I know that he's able and I know of his strength and I know of his might, then I know when he promises me something in his word, I can take it to the bank. It's certain. It's done. He has the power to deliver his people to the promised land come hell or high water. He's going to do it. And that leads us to the ultimate memorial, an empty tomb, the stone rolled away, the ultimate memorial that points to God's ultimate promise, a promise that says Jesus is alive. And if he's alive, you are also alive if you follow him, if you believe in him. He's not death. Death couldn't hold him down. Death was swallowed in victory. And if you follow him, you in turn will also overcome death and everything that comes with it. You want to overcome tomorrow? Follow Jesus. We're alive. Not because of anything we've done, but because of what Christ has done. This is a promise that God has made to us. Romans 8, verse 11, it says this, If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. You've been promised that Jesus is alive. You've been promised that the Holy Spirit is with you. You've been promised that he's going to help you. You've been promised that you will overcome death itself. And so when life seems too hard to cope, when you can't face tomorrow, look to the past. Listen to the voices of yesterday that testify that we have a mighty God who is able to deliver on his promises. Cling to those promises. Cling to the fact that Jesus is alive. Cling to the fact that you have the Holy Spirit. Cling to the fact that if you believe in him, you too will overcome. This is what Jesus says. Look to the empty tomb. Take heart because you're going to have troubles in the world. But I've overcome the world. You're going to have troubles, but don't worry. I've overcome the world, Jesus says. And he has overcome anything you will ever come up against. There's nothing that you're ever going to face that Jesus hasn't in turn already conquered. He's already claimed victory over it all. And one day, he's going to deliver on his final promise to come back. He's going to come back. He's going to take those who are his home. And he's going to put death in the grave once and for all. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you that um, we overcome in turn because Christ overcame. We are reaping 
the benefits and the blessing of his work. And that is extremely gracious. And we thank you for that, Lord. I pray, Father, that we would constantly on a daily basis be reminded of your power, your might. And I pray, Father, that that would instill fear in our hearts. And that this fear of you would bring about a response that honors and glorifies you, Lord. I pray that when we face our struggles, we would fear you. That when we are tempted to sin, we would fear you, Father. I pray, Father, we would have a healthy understanding of your your awesome, wonderful, marvelous power. I pray, Lord, for the rest of today as we go, that you would bless it. I lift up our offering to you, Father. I pray that um, these financial resources that you have richly blessed us with would be used to tell of people of your great name and your great power, Father. Let this giving not be done in vain, Lord. And in your holy name I pray. Amen.